Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for reliability people to better themselves, both at work and at home. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. I hope you like the new music. It's by Jazz Har. If you're really interested into it, you can check the podcast notes for the source. This week, I welcome on Steve Doby to talk about reliability in mining. We talk about changing cultures, haul truck tires, and the impact of autonomous trucking on reliability. If you haven't yet, check out my website, robsreliability.com, and sign up for the weekly reliability newsletter with bonus content. If you like the show, please tell your colleagues about it and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and YouTube because I've been putting out uh, some bonus content lately. The memes on my Rob's Reliability Project LinkedIn page have been pretty fun lately, so I hope you guys are enjoying those. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, shoot me an email at robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Do you want a better reliability program? Do you want better data quality in your CMMS? Well, having frustrated and overworked shop floor people isn't the way to get that great reliability program. Often we make our mechanics, millwrights, and operators do paper rounds and then transcribe that information into a desktop CMMS. This causes more frustration and we'll likely lose data quality in that process. So why don't we try something different? Upkeep maintenance management is different. It's a mobile-first CMMS that takes the work out of work orders with its easy-to-use mobile application. With a snap of a picture and just a few keystrokes on your mobile device, you can update work orders in a matter of seconds. Upkeep is a mobile-first CMMS designed to be easy for your maintenance personnel. So easy, it was voted number one for ease of use by maintenance teams. Rob's Reliability Project has partnered with Upkeep to not only give you a great mobile-first CMMS, but also if you purchase an annual subscription, you get one month free and a bonus one-hour free coaching call with me. Make your reliability program better and make your text lives easier by going to robsreliability.com slash upkeep and sign up today. Hey guys, we're back. I'm here with Steve Doby. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing good, Rob. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for coming back on. And for people listening, you were on one of the deleted episodes, and then you were also on one of the early episodes with Blair Frazier, but you didn't say anything. <laughs> I was just too enthralled with listening to Blair talk. <laughs> that was a fun episode. I think that was episode three. And if you people go back and listen, um, it was kind of a disaster because we were sitting in Memphis in the hotel and while we were recording, the bartender decided to make a ton of noise throughout the recording. So sorry for the audio quality. Yeah, that was, uh, I learned a lot from that chat, though. I was just, 
uh, I, I haven't met anybody that knows more about machine learning than than Blair, so it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, Blair's great. So for everybody listening, uh, Steve, you know, we worked together at our last employer, and now you're up as the senior reliability engineer at Imperial Metals at the Red Chris Mine. Do you want to just give everyone an introduction to you? Like, how'd you get your start in maintenance and reliability? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I started in maintenance and reliability was at Fluid Life with you, Robin. You actually taught me a lot of, a lot that I know about the whole the whole uh, maintenance and reliability world. So at Fluid Life, you know, looking at all all the bulk data that we had there and everything. And, you know, it certainly fo- focused on the oil analysis and stuff like that. But uh, we started to bring more of the other data in and started trying to use it all and come up with some uh, better solutions for the customers. And then the last little bit of time there we spent, uh, went out to a one of our customers and worked as, you know, a maintenance planner for them, trying to develop uh, Fluid Life's ma- maintenance uh asset management and maintenance planning services so that was a pretty great experience and uh, the mind we were at you know taught me a lot and it's been pretty pretty fantastic since then so yeah and that's the one thing is is the more experience you get and the more places you go you really learn a bunch of stuff and that was the one thing i liked about consulting was just the ability to like we were on the road you know 25 50 percent of the time and you're going to all these different facilities, you're talking to all these different people and you're really getting a full feel of their problems. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting. Like a, a lot of places, they love to have that, you know, idea that, you know, you need to be in mining to understand the equipment. You need to be in forestry to understand the equipment. But the reality is, it's all the same. It, it's it's gear, bearings, gearboxes, you know, pumps, turbines, like everybody's using the same equipment. It's just a different application. And once you can understand the unique differences in the applications, it's not a big deal to kind of move between the different ones. Yeah, no, I I agree. And actually it was funny because we were recording yesterday with Kate Cohen, which to everyone listening, that's last week's podcast. And she said that in in high-speed manufacturing, the big thing is like she's coming from it from the industrial internet of of things space and apparently the the controllers and the plc and the coding it varies a lot based on manufacturer so from an electrical point of view or an iot point of view they're very different but you know i'm a mechanical engineer you're a materials engineer from our point of view as more on the mechanical side it's like a hydraulic tank's a hydraulic tank whether even whether it's a hundred thousand liters or a thousand liters, right? Yeah, exactly. It's you know that mechanical side. It's everything's running the same. So yeah, and the other thing that I, I found interesting is it's it's still a culture game and it's still a people game. And oftentimes, what you see in these cultures is they're very similar. Like the attitudes are kind of negative. People are a bit reactive. The, the shop floor guys, they, they know what they should be doing and they know how to do it right. But oftentimes there's some stuff there that is not like their management team's not working for them. Like, what did you, like, what do you see 
across the board. Yeah. So, you know, one of the first things I did, so Imperial Metals actually didn't have a reliability engineer before I got there. And one of the first things I wanted to do was get that, that buy-in from the floor and talking to the guys and, you know, all these guys, they're, they're journeyman mechanics. They've been servicing, uh, they're servicemen that have been servicing for 15 years at lots of other places. They all know the right way to do things. Uh, and it's just about understanding and, and, and capturing that knowledge and those things that they know and see that isn't happening and making sure we can start to get it to happen because they already know it. And same thing at every other place I've been. It's it's the guys on the floor know the right way to do it. They learn that in their journeyman, uh, their trade school or or throughout just learning from other techs over the years. It's just a matter of empowering them to to make the proper decisions. Now, in terms of those mechanics, like what would you say about the age or the demographics of them? Are like are they older guys? Is there kind of this a bunch of old guys and a bunch of young guys? Is it a mix? Like what does it look like? You know, at uh, at Red Chris Mine, it's a little bit a little bit of a younger crowd. We're working in much harsher conditions than most other mines, just being that we don't have a full shop. Um, so everybody's working outside and it doesn't matter if it's plus 30 outside or minus 40, you know, it's the same guys doing the job. So it's, uh, tends to be a bit of a younger crowd, uh, interested in a little bit more of that challenge. Um, but it's, you know, I'm starting to see an in industry too, as other places we go, that is that younger crowds starting to come in those, uh, older mechanics and a lot of the tribal knowledge they have as well is starting to disappear. So working on working with those guys as well and making sure we're capturing that tribal knowledge is hugely important. Yeah, I mean, they've been talking about that generation, I guess the baby boomers leaving the workforce since I was started my career and I still am, I I still really haven't seen it too much, but maybe maybe we're starting to get it there. Yeah, there's, you know, a lot of the the baby boomers they they do enjoy working. Like we've got a couple guys at our mine that are nearing 70 and they're not there because they have to work. They're there just because they genuinely enjoy working there. And, uh, so that, that's really great to see it. Um, but you know, as, as they get older, you know, they're going to start to want to slow down. So things might change. Well, I know when I'm 70, I hope I'm on a beach somewhere. <laughs> Hopefully a little bit before then. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to have you on today, Steve, to talk a little bit about reliability and mining. Like, do you want to give us just a breakdown of like, obviously, since you started, you've you've hired a few more reliability people. Like what kind of work are you guys doing? And it, at least from a reliability perspective. So the number one thing we've been working on is, is truly culture. Um getting that culture within both the maintenance and the operation world is hugely important. Like it doesn't matter what initiatives I start up. If there's no buy-in from both Matt from the top at the management level or the bottom at the tech level, nothing's going to get done. So it's like, we've worked hard building up that trust with the techs. And it's to the point now where I come into the office and I've got 15 broken parts sitting on my desk waiting for me uh, to, to take a look at. So they've already dealt with them, but it's just interesting stuff that they found and wanted to show me. So like that right there is showing a huge buy-in and, and it's, it's pretty great. And then uh, getting the top work from the, 
the upper level and getting the buy-in for different things. Like we started doing RCAs and uh, treating failures as, okay, let's, when something breaks, let's take a step back, think about why it failed, understand why it failed. And so that we can truly understand and make sure it doesn't happen again. So we've implemented uh, like, you know, things like give our supervisors quick five wise training and, you know, just not that five wise is necessarily the best RCA method, but it's getting people into that mindset of asking the question, why or how um, did something fail so that they can capture the data and start working towards finding solutions instead of saying, oh my, oh my goodness, it broke. Let's rip it out, put something back, new back in and we'll solve all problems. You know, yeah, that only keeps it down for five or six hours maybe, but we're just going to repeat those same mistakes. So, you know, it's kind of changing that culture from that reactive mindset to being uh, more proactive. We're trying to skip a bit of that preventative step like we're always doing the services and things like that but you know uh, as reliability people we understand how things fail and the preventative is maintenance is just you know while necessary it's not always gonna result in the the biggest savings so pulling in that proactive side more so yeah i think there's a bit of both and i think that you can't not necessarily skip steps but when we talk about that journey of reactive to preventive to predictive to proactive, I think there are some aspects of proactive that you can kind of use earlier on. Like you don't have to just put your whole facility on monthly PMs. Yeah, exactly. And things like uh, um, change in hydraulic oil is a perfect example. Going back to our fluid life days, uh, we know that you know the oil that's in your tanks is often dirtier than the oil that's in the equipment. So why would you change it out? And so like, you know, we're doing that uh, preventatively, but even though we're going to, um, we're doing that journey from reactive to preventative proactive, there's things in there that we can just jump. Okay, let's do this proactively. You know, we got somebody that knows a little bit about samples, set up some criteria. Instantly that's being done on condition without any, any real changes that are needed. It's just uh, just remove it from the PM sheets and generate a work order whenever it's needed. So there, there's things you can do to jump those steps um, and start seeing value from the proactive side without having to sit there on that predictive side or that preventative side. <laughs> now, I was, I was recently at an interview and they were talking about that predictive maintenance was the final step and proactive was before it. I wasn't completely sold on that as a concept. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that, but that's kind of disappointing to hear that that's out there. Uh, Cause you know, ultimately you, you want to do maintenance just in time. That's just before you have that functional failure. And if you're doing preventative maintenance, you have no idea if you're doing it just in time or, you know, maybe you're doing it, 3000 hours early, who knows, right? Yeah. And I, and I think there's like the, the other thing, right. Is it's a cost thing. Like if we get back to RCM fundamentals, like what you're trying to do is minimize the cost of your maintenance program while maintaining that function. Right. So if we're looking at it and saying that predictive is our end goal, well, 
there are some things that run to failure is the right strategy. There are some things that preventive maintenance is the right strategy. And there are some things that predictive maintenance is the right strategy. And the only way to really incorporate those three strategies is, I mean, it's sort of quasi proactive maintenance, but it's also that continuous improvement, the defect elimination, the root cause analysis, those type of things, tying it all together. Yeah, for sure. Like you look at a haul truck and a haul truck rolling down the road hauling 400 tons of material. You use all three of those methodologies on that truck. You know, the, the, uh, sorry, the reactive maintenance side, the breakdown work, you know, when you're looking at where your box plates and stuff like that, you know, you do your measurements each PM, but ultimately it's, okay, um, that's gonna, that needs to come in, you know, different places are at different levels and can predict that better. But there are certainly things on your trucks that you aren't predicting. Now, when they fail functionally, it's not going to take the unit out of service. But it does need to be addressed at the immediate PM after that. Whereas, you know, we're always changing the oil at each service every 500 hours, doesn't matter what it is for the engine, because, you know, we know that breaks down in a pretty consistent pattern. And then the predictive is, you know, everything you and I work on with the machine learning type stuff and, you know, trying to understand, okay, can we use uh, oil analysis to start predicting engine failures or, or different things like that, right? Yeah. And for me, you know, the funny thing about mining is like when I was doing some of the, the analytics, you would find things that people weren't expecting. And a few of those examples were we did a criticality analysis once and the fire truck came up as the most critical thing in the mine, which kind of makes sense. One of the other things was greater the graders, because of the, the roads, the grader is super important in terms of production, but also in terms of safety. And then one of the other ones was the water truck. So I don't know if people listening are, are too entirely familiar with mining, but if you don't wet the roads, you'll get, oftentimes you can get a ton of dust. And then what will happen is you'll actually have to kind of shut down the roads because it's unsafe to drive because you can't see anything. So it's stuff like that, that if you're an operator and you're maybe you're doing a criticality analysis, like the operators will know that where I didn't know those things at the time when I, when I was working. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny that you say water truck because uh, you know, it's there's a few types of water trucks at the, at the mine. And we had a, interesting thought process not that long ago where we thought about okay what's what is really critical here at site and um water truck came up because we don't have a wash bay for our truck so we have two steam trucks that go out and wash all the all the units before they come in for service so these steam trucks there's two we usually about two pms per day um so they're they're going full-time washing equipment well we also have a water truck that fills up the drill the drill is a key piece of production equipment. You don't drill a blast, you don't get to mine. Pretty simple stuff. It really is. This water truck we have, it doesn't. Uh, we found that when it when it did go out of service for whatever reason, even if it was just you know it's regular scheduled PM, we can't drill. Uh, so the water trucks are PM water trucks that are steaming and cleaning off the equipment. They go and fill up the the drill instead. 
taking RPMs down. So it's just a snowball effect because that one water truck is down for whatever reason. Okay, now we're not washing our trucks. Now our services aren't as effective. Services aren't as effective, that can lead to you know, more breakdowns. So, so you just start looking at that chain of it and that doing that brainstorming or thought experiment. You can, you can quickly identify, oh, this cheap piece of equipment is actually pretty valuable and important. Yeah, and it's funny because the conventional wisdom, right, is the water truck doesn't matter. Sometimes even they'll take the oldest haul trucks that they're going to park and convert them into a water truck. Yeah, they will. <laughs> you've been to lots of sites where you've seen, you know, you go and you look at some of the support equipment and you're like, okay, I understand it's support equipment, but, you know, these are important. <laughs> I guess diving back into it, like what types of predictive maintenance are you doing? Like you're obviously doing oil analysis. Are you doing vibration analysis? Are you getting into telemetry at all? Uh, we're trying to get into telemetry more. Um, you know, we have cat trucks and so the VIMS is set up on everything. So I'm trying to get a system together where, you know, I can start building some machine learning uh, algorithms from that data to start predicting the failure cat i know is invested hugely in their um, analytics on vim's data from the trucks and so tapping into that resource pool as well and starting to understand that stuff from a predictive side um vibration we're tr they we do a little bit in the mill nothing nothing too crazy as of yet we're looking we're looking at different systems to try and uh help us out with that but the big thing is you know getting our techs and everything trained up properly so that we don't have to outsource a lot of this stuff off-site and we can just we can look at it on-site and get our techs to start taking actions themselves versus having to wait for an outside analysis perspective yeah and then the other interesting one we started doing on the trucks is you know we there's a bit of a problem with hot tires it's uh uh, you well, you you know, mining tires are always a problem on everybody's mind. Um, so it's kind of uh, you know, I wasn't a tire guy before I got there, but I certainly turned into one since being there. And you know, looking into how the tires actually fail and understanding the different failure modes is actually quite different than most other types of components. You know, we talked earlier about how gearboxes, gearbox bearings, bearing, you know, but. Tires is one of those unique ones that, you know, depending on the industry you're in, you kind of have to go into it, uh, dive into that one a little bit deeper. But we started getting some sensors on our tires to understanding the conditions that they're experiencing. And uh, we want to start correlating that to failures. And so we can, okay, you know, we had this tire ran hot for whatever, 500 hours really in its life. What does that mean for when that tire reaches, you know, the 5,000 hour mark and it's about to wear out? Because, you know, every time you do change a tire, it's taking the unit out of service for three three to six hours. So, <laughs> I mean, when you say the tire reaches 5,000 hours, you must be at a hard rock mine. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> yes, I know the oil sands gets quite a bit more, but 5,000, 6,000, somewhere in that range is pretty standard for wear out at the hard rock mines. Yeah, when when I was working at Tech, I did some analysis on it, and for to put it into perspective for people, the tires cost somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars each, and they're about I would say about twelve feet in diameter, roughly. So they're they're not small. 
And we were getting about, we were averaging about, it was about half a year. So it was somewhere in the 2,500 to 3,000 range in terms of hours on the tires. And so they were like significant expenditures on tires. And then even there was sometimes it was hard to source enough of them. Yeah, and that's the biggest problem. Like you want to do a trial with a new type of tire, you want to you want from Michelin Goodyear Bridge. It doesn't matter what it is, but you have a six months waiting list uh, for getting those tires to begin with. Just getting yourself on that run because uh, they set those runs up a long time in advance. Like uh, you know, I think the Goodyear factories in out by Kansas City, Missouri, uh, just outside of there, um, and and yeah, it's. You know, if you're not on the regular customer list, it's a bit of a wait to get anything. So it's uh, it's interesting. <laughs> it's always good to be in the know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then part of that problem too, the tires is uh, it's a little bit different how they're rated compared to a lot of other equipment because it's not just about you know this is our expected operating hours or you know everything has their load and, and uh, their load ratings and whatever wear ratings and things like that but with tires it's, it's interesting so they have their tkp ph uh, tons per kilometers per hour um, there's another version of the calculation for miles per per operating hour and stuff like that but it's uh we start looking at it so okay how much are we hauling how fast are we hauling per the shift speed um is our haul uphill downhill you know all these things are, are adjusting that tk pH value and you know you need to try and find a tire that's appropriate for your site but when there's only three manufacturers of a tire and they all have pretty similar TKPH ratings if you're not in that range you're in trouble so if your your operation is a little bit different than most other operations out there then you got to find a way to try to bring your operation back down if you want to increase the life of your tires <laughs> But I was told once that one site never overloads their trucks. <laughs> oh, yes. And that's what's great about Vims is, you know, you don't overload your trucks. Here's the data that shows you overloaded your trucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're just making up numbers now. That's what data is. Oh. <laughs> it even sends out a nice little histogram that shows you how much you overload, how often. It's great. <laughs> so one of the, the things you mentioned earlier in the podcast is that you're working on shifting the culture towards more of a reliability culture. What sort of stuff do you do on a daily basis that pushes that culture forward? A lot of it is training and engaging with the guys, not necessarily formal training. You know, that that's certainly important in there. And, you know, I'll go down and, you know, coming from fluid life, it's pretty easy for me to give a, a course on oil analysis and, and lubrication and, you know, that aspect. But also, like, I've learned all this stuff about the tires. Does our operations team understand this? Let's go talk to them about tires. So sitting down with each of the crews and, and talking about tires, how they fail, um, just so that brings them awareness. So our operators know when they're driving down the roads, oh my tires are hot. How can I how can I how can I affect change so that it cools them down? Or, you know, 
you know, I know this hull's a little bit rougher. What can I do differently to make it a little easier on the truck? So bringing training like that, you know, it's the whole operate for reliability or operator-driven reliability, empowering the operators to make those decisions for their equipment. And then on the maintenance side, like our servicemen, uh, you know, it's it's funny, lube tech, servicemen, it's always one of the lowest jobs on a site, um, particularly in a newer site. But when you start looking at the job, nobody touches more equipment than the lube tech or the servicemen. They hear everything. They see everything almost on a daily basis. So if you can empower them and kind of teach them, okay, look for these things. Let's understand these things. Then all of a sudden, you've got a pair of eyes on every single truck every day. And it's hugely valuable data that they can gather just by being there, listening to it and saying, this truck sounds a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely. Those are, you know, those are some great tips. And it was actually funny. It was, um, I forget, but I forget if it was on one of these podcasts or if it was when I saw Joe at UE, UE Systems World, the Ultrasound World Conference. But he mentioned that 50% roughly, he's talking manufacturing, but he was saying that about 50% of your losses are due to operations. And one of the first things that he does, disclaimer, if I remembered that stat wrong, don't kill me about it. Uh, <laughs> but what he was saying was one of the first things that he does when he gets to his site is he gets the main maintenance guys to train the operators instead of just training the maintenance guys themselves. It's like a really interesting idea that I hadn't really thought of before that, but I thought it would be you know, I, th- I think it's a great idea. Yeah, that's fantastic. Anytime, like that's one of the principles of asset management, right? Is that integration between de- between between departments and breaking down those barriers and opening that communication. That's a fantastic way to do that. Yeah, and it, it's something also when we talk about the operators, at least on a haul truck side, like some of the projections that I saw in 2012-ish about, having the autonomous trucks, they were saying that you would save, you know, roughly 20% in maintenance costs because the drivers are driving it more, I guess, normally, or you can set rules to it. Yeah, it was the the autonomous trucks, like fantastic concept. And it's, you know, you know, I, I, it's going to be, it's a great place to go, but it's showed some issues have shown up that are quite interesting associated with it. Like talking about the tires there. So that TKPO TKPH rating is associated with your average shift speed. Well, when you don't have shift change and you don't have, and you're fully optimized. So that those trucks are always moving. So they've actually seen significant tire issues on those autonomous hauls just because there's no operator in the seat being, having that human inefficiency in there. So they're having to redesign the entire tire to take more TKPH just because there's no operator in there. So, sorry, that was an aside. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, it's a great point. Like, I had never heard of that. And, like, I haven't seen too many in operation. I've only ever seen a few up at Suncor, which they were in a separate pit i guess and they were just trialing them out but i've never really seen an autonomous mine yet yeah me neither but it's uh you know talking to the tire guys a lot and 
you know, a few of them have been up there. So it's pretty, pretty interesting to hear the stories of those treks. Yeah. And where, what mines were they using them at? I think it was the Fort Hills mine that they were, they were at. Cool. No, that, yeah, that's cool. And, and that technology is coming. I mean, it, it just makes sense, at least from a production standpoint, plus it's in theory, it should be safer as well. So th- there's another side on that. Yeah. Haul, well, particularly haul trucks were one of the, also because they're one of the most common units in a mine, but they're also one of the most dangerous. I think probably now again, just as this is just an estimate for a stat, probably 90% issues are associated with haul trucks from a safety standpoint. So anytime you can remove people from that dangerous situation, the better. Absolutely. So I guess, I guess we'll start wrapping up here, but I got a, I got a few questions before we get, we get there. What, what mistakes have you seen that people are making in mining that is really affecting their reliability and how do we avoid those? You know, the biggest one is step over a dollar, step over a dollar, pick up a penny kind of thing. It's, um, there's a lot of a lot of issues out there, and a lot of techs understand how to solve these issues. But just to get, instead of taking a unit down for a couple hours, we need to get that production now, and ultimately it costs us, you know, an engine or a transmission or something. So getting out of that mindset, it makes a huge difference. Um, also, understanding that your yeah, you have your budget years, you know, goes from whenever January one to December thirty first, but if you have something and you are doing it on hours or on condition, even though it's going to might incur that extra cost in this budget year, ultimately your five-year finances are going to be better if you had changed it, you know, a month or two earlier in this budget year instead of pushing it out another another 500,000 hours kind of thing, right? That's just understanding those makes a huge difference for reliability. Um, you know, it's often competing with with operations and maintenance viewpoints for liability because, you know, the point is to look further than this today, this week, this month, um, and look out, okay, well, what's this going to look like over the next five years? And that kind of thinking can be a lot, pretty difficult for some people. So uh, once you can get over that bias, you're, you're going to be much better off. <laughs> this was probably, maybe it was a year ago, but I had an interview with a company and the guy was asking me about some of the financial savings that that I had done over my career. And what he was saying was wherever he works, they decided that unless you can push out the savings into a new year, it doesn't count. And so to me, I mean, to me, that logic is ridiculous because then why bother doing reliability at all? But that kind of thinking, like, let's say we were going to change out an engine or change a set of tires. If we did it December 31st, or if we did it January 1st, does it really make a difference? Probably not. But let's say we did it December, or sorry, January 2nd, and we could push it all the way to December 31st of the following, of the same year, I guess. So we've extended it like 364 days. Then we've actually made a difference. 
right? So it's it's that thinking, which is instead of thinking necessarily about this budget cycle, which yes, it's important for shareholders, it's important for you know capex, opex, that kind of stuff. But if we're in reliability, we're thinking about the life cycle of your mine. So your mine, unless it's ending tomorrow, extending it 364 days is far more valuable than extending it until tomorrow. So I just had to get on my high horse there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's the perks of being in reliability. So one of the one of the questions I liked that I actually got off another podcast is if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you started your career with everything that you know now, what would that advice be? Oh, I, honest, I think probably that the best advice I could have taken was be hard on the problem, not the people. Uh, I took a, a negotiating course recently through just, just on Audible there. And, uh, you know, I started talking about that and I looked at how I interact with people on site and um, just putting yourself in their shoes. Like, what are your priorities? What are your priorities? What are you trying to accomplish? Why are we, why is what I'm trying to do different than what you're trying to do in coming to a common goal? Um, if I understood that when I started my career, things would have been probably quite a bit different for me because you know, I would have had that better understanding. You know, I come out of school, I'm that arrogant engineer that, you know, thinks he can take on the world. And I quickly found out that, hey, no, you know nothing. <laughs> so being able to take that step back and understand what everybody's, where everybody's priorities are would make a huge difference for me. Yeah, I like that. I like that as a tip. And I guess the last question I got for you is where do you see the future of mining going? So like let's let's put a little time cap on it. it let's say the next 2 to 5 years. Like do you where do you see it going? W- what new technologies are are going to be more pervasive? What are people going to be doing? One of the biggest things I think is going to be that autonomous halls. Um that's going to be huge. Also, autonomizing as much equipment as you can. Uh, a few things, it'll be remotely controlled shovels. Like, uh, I think about where we are in Dees Lake. It's not the most remote location, but, you know, it's it's pretty far up there. Um, you're a good 12 hours away from any major center driving. Um, so, we're doing a fly in, fly out. But if you can move your staff for some of these remote locations, move them to, I don't know, Calgary or, or Vancouver or something, all of a sudden you can pull from a lot bigger talent pool. Everybody has better, arguably better work-life balance because, you know, you're not at camp doing shift work, um, get to go home every night. So I, I think that's where a lot of it's going to go is that autonomous hall and remote and remote-controlled assets. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. And I also, the other thing I want to, I guess, ask you is, you know, with these remote sites, do you do you think millennials are less forgiving in going up there and experiencing these types of conditions? Or do you think they are equal or more as their, I guess, older peers? I think it's more of a question of where you are in life. If you, if you're young, um, unattached, uh, no kids or whatever, then, you know, shift work is fantastic. You've got 
you go up for two weeks, you leave for two weeks, and you know that two weeks, you want to go to Mexico, you want to live in Mexico? Not a problem. But when you start to get a little older, start to get a family, then you know it's harder being away from your family and everything. So I think it's less of a question on are millennials willing to do it or not willing to do it. It's, I think it's more where you are in your life and what's important to you at that time. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, Steve, I, ha- I had fun with this one. Now, last thing before you go, do you have anything to plug? Like people listening, they should follow you on LinkedIn. That's Stephen Doby, uh, tagged in the post. And also, if you're listening when you're driving or something, check the podcast notes for that. But do you have anything to plug? Are you going to be at any conferences? Do you got anything else coming up? I have nothing scheduled. Um, I was hoping to be able to attend the PMAC conference there at Edmonton this year. Um, I think that'll be a pretty good one. I think you're presenting that uh, that one as well. Yes, sir. And, you know, I'm hoping as well to look at going to IMC as well. So hopefully maybe I'll see you guys there. Yeah, I, I won't be at IMC this year, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, so everyone listening, thank you for listening. Uh, Steve, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was good chat. Yeah, we'll definitely have to do this one again. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.